Well, if you have a Bible, uh, it'd be great to, to take that out. Uh, actually, we won't have the words on the screen this morning, so you can follow along in, in a Bible. Um, if you need to use your phone um, or other device, you can follow along that way. If you have the Version app or Bible Gateway, lots of great resources uh, like that. But um, in our this part of our worship gathering, uh, the teaching time, what we've been doing over the last number of weeks is just looking at the story of the scriptures, like the big overarching story of the Bible. And we're calling this series Scripture, God's Epic Story. And the hope, the point, is so that we can have a better understanding of the big story that God is telling, uh, the story that makes sense of the whole world, that makes sense of our lives, that we can find ourselves in the story. And when we come to the scriptures, like when we, uh, when we read and meditate on the scriptures in our own lives, uh, it, it makes a little bit more sense to us of like what's happening and what God is trying to do and what the big picture really is. So this is our fourth week. And, and just a reminder, because I know there's lots of life going on and you sleep from Sunday to Sunday, right? There's, we can kind of forget things. And so I'll just kind of do a quick review of where we've been. The Bible opens, uh, part one is Genesis 1 and 2, and it's the king creates. God is the king, creates a world, and the world is good. It's good, 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 very good. And the world is a place of abundance. It's a place where uh, creatures, all living things are meant to um, flourish and thrive and spread. And human beings, us, we're created in God's image. And part of what that means is we're given authority to rule over, to steward God's world, to take care of it. That's part one. That's how God designed things. Part two is a rebellion in the kingdom. That human beings chose to turn their backs on God, chose to rebel, to listen to uh, the evil one, and um, made a mess of God's good creation. And so that's part two, is this rebellion in the kingdom that just, like, it it made a mess and broke a lot of things, broke everything, including our own hearts. Part three, then, is how the king chose a people. So the rest of the Old Testament, from um, from Genesis 12 through the rest of the Old Testament, is God the king choosing a people, choosing Abraham and Sarah and their family, uh, and choosing them to be like this healing presence in the world. Like, like that's God's design, is through this one elderly couple that God would miraculously bring a people, a people who would be dependent on God, who would learn to live in relationship with the king, and then who would just like spread the goodness of the king to the rest of the world. That's the Old Testament. And so today, uh, last week what we talked about is like how that didn't work out so well, that there are lots of things that the Old Testament reveals that, that won't actually change the human heart. And so the Old Testament ends with this longing for a king, for, for the king to actually come, who can actually stay uh, true to God, who can rescue us from, uh, from our own hearts and from our own rebellion. And that king, of course, we know is Jesus. And so that's part four. Part four of the story is kind of the climax of the story. It is King Jesus. Uh, That's the title for the sermon this morning, Jesus the King. Now, we throw the language of Jesus being king around a lot in the church. Did you catch that in the song we sang earlier this morning? The second song, everybody remember what it was called? King of Kings, right? We, We talk about that. What does that mean? Like, what does it mean for you 
to sing that song. Because when we sing, we're declaring things. Now, we can sing, and I, I know I, I do this often, um, where I just sing the words because they're on the screen. You ever find yourself doing that? Like, if I'm honest, my head is kind of somewhere else, my heart is kind of somewhere else, and I'm just singing words. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but it happens sometimes. And yet, when we sing these words together, we're declaring that this is true, that Jesus is the King of Kings. What in the world does that mean? We talk about Jesus being king. Does it mean, when I say Jesus is king, uh, does it mean he's king of my heart? Is that what it means for Jesus to be king? Uh, does it mean he's king in some kind of figurative sense? Like, it's this kind of flowery language to say that Jesus is king. What, what does this mean? And it's kind of hard for us to grasp because we don't live in a kingdom. Like, right, we don't live in an actual system of, of monarchy and, and kings and queens and royalty and all of that. In fact, very few people around the world today still live in a, a kingdom, a monarchy. Um, you probably know American history. We broke away from a kingdom, from King George. And if you don't know that story, you can just watch Hamilton. It's the best way to find out history. Um, right? We, we broke away from, from this monarchy. Why, why have most of the monarchies around the world been replaced by democracies? It's because kings become tyrants. Right? You, you empower a person, a man or a woman, with that kind of power, and it corrupts the heart so much that they become controlling and, and tyrannical. And so we have, we have chosen to say, wow, democracies are a better form of government than monarchies. And I think we would all agree that that is true, right? Of course, yeah, we, we love living in a democracy, but yet we're still fascinated by kings and queens. We can't shake it. Have you ever noticed this? Did anybody watch the coronation of King Charles? Now, let's be honest, like the, the British monarchy, it is a, it's more symbolic than anything. Right? The king doesn't actually have that much power or that much control. But there's something about it that's like, wow, we love watching, you know, coronations. Every, did you watch the coronation of King Charles? I ended up watching it, and I, I felt bad for the guy. Like, the whole, there's all this, like, pomp and circumstance and, and all of this spectacle. And, and the thing I felt bad for is, like, here's this, this guy, and, and under all of those beautiful robes and under that beautiful crown is just an old, tired dude. And you can see him. He's just like shaking there as these words are being spoken over him. It's just a dude, right? And yet he's, he's in this place where people are elevating him. Like there's something, there's something we love about kings. Have you ever thought about how many stories you love? Stories that have captivated the hearts and the minds of people are about kings. They're about like there's a story that says, hey, there was once a good king. This good king that ruled with love and justice, and under this king's good rule, the world flourished. But then that good king went away. And ever since that good king went away, we've been struggling in darkness and pain. Do you know that story? Uh, how about the story of Robin Hood? Right? That, that's the story, right? King Richard goes off, and you know the others who are taking his place, they, they start oppressing the people. That's the story of Robin Hood, the story of Camelot. Who's the king in Camelot? King Arthur, right? The round table. And, you know, King Arthur, he, he, he leads with love and justice, but then King Arthur is gone, and so the world falls into chaos. Lord of the Rings fans? 
right? There's a king. There was once a king named Isildur, but Isildur's heir is lost, and he's somewhere up in the north, and the world is in darkness and chaos, but someday Isildur's heir, his line that has been broken, will return and will take his place and will rule the world. Are you with me? I mean, there is something deep inside the human heart that longs for a king. Why? It's almost like there's a memory deep inside all of us, like deeper than we can think or acknowledge. It's, it's like deep within us that knows that this is our story, that there was once a king, that there it was the king, God, the creator, who ruled this world with love and justice, but a rebellion has has ruined God's kingdom, and we long for a king to come, to, to reestablish what once was, and to, again, rule this world um, in goodness so we can flourish under him. And that's the story the Bible tells. I mean, that's, that's the story. Now, um, in the Old Testament, there was one human king. The human kings were just kind of symbolic. Um, they were kind of stand-ins for God, the one true king. And the most popular, the most famous king in the Old Testament, do you know his name? He was the second king. David. David was, he was like hands down, he was the most prominent king in the Old Testament. Now, he wasn't perfect. He made a lot of mistakes. Um, he was a human being. He was kind of like King Charles. He was just a dude, right, under that crown and those robes. But the thing about David was he was humble and he was teachable. And when he turned his back away from God, he always repented. He always came back. And I think that's a good picture of what God wants for us. We're not perfect. We're not going to, like, we're not always going to get it right. But when we know that we mess up, we, we come back and we're humble and we're teachable. And that's what David, uh, what David was. And so God made a covenant with David. And you can read about this. We won't take time to look at it uh, specifically, but you can read about it in 2 Samuel 7. God looks at David and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And here's my promise to you, David, that you will always have a king that sits on the throne. Uh, verse 16, 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God makes a covenant with King David and says, like, your descendants um, will always sit on the throne. Now, um, David died. He was just a man. He died. He was buried. And he had sons. He had a son, Solomon. Solomon inherits the kingdom. Solomon doesn't do so well. Right? His heart turns away from God. And then Solomon has sons, and the kingdom turns into a civil war, and the kingdom divides. And king after king after king in David's line were just tyrants. Right? They were just, just men who couldn't handle the power, and, and they, they led the world um, in really poor ways. And so finally what ends up happening is David's line is cut off. Like the, the, the kingly line of David is cut off. In fact, the picture used in the Old Testament is like it's like a tree that has been cut down. You, you talked about the, the tree, right? The tree of like it's God's you know, flourishing and favor. And that tree, which is David's line, was cut down. It was like a stump that was there. And so, like, people are, like, saying, will there ever be a king in the line of David? Will there ever be somebody who can come and actually do what David and his descendants couldn't do? Will there ever be a true king? And there was a prophet named Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus, and this is what Isaiah envisioned in Isaiah chapter 11. Um, he says it this way. He says that a root, a shoot, will come from the stump of David's father. 
Like, that's the picture, right? This, this tree has been cut off. It's like the promise is empty, uh, is, is broken. It will never happen. And yet, the, the prophet Isaiah sees this vision that someday God will come out of David's line. And from this root, a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on this one. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and might. A spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. A true king is coming. That's the promise that the Old Testament ends with. Right? That, that longing for the true king to come. Now, do you know how the Gospels begin? Like, Christmas time. Right? The, the passage. Turn, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. So there's this longing for a true king, somebody who can actually come from the line of David, a, a, a son of David who will actually do what is right and will follow God's ways. And here's how. Um, here's how the Gospel of Luke begins in Luke chapter 2. Uh, let's look at uh, verse 4. So Mary is pregnant, and uh, Mary and Joseph, they, they travel uh, to register for the census. Do you know, do you know the story? Right? We, Luke 2, right? We, we talk about this at Christmas time all the time. Uh, verse 4, it says, So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was the town of David. Bethlehem was the town of David. It was David's hometown because he belonged, Joseph belonged to the house and the line of Isildur, King Arthur, King Richard, David, right? When, when you read those words, you read it with all of that backstory, like that, that promise, that covenant that has been cut off is actually coming true, that a king is coming. When, when people would have heard these words like Joseph, Mary, and this child that's miraculously in them, going to the house and, and, and the town of David, they would have been like, maybe this is the king who is coming. So, so all, already it's like there is this promise that Jesus is this true king coming in the line of David. Um, and then what do the angels say? Take a look, verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 10. The angels... On the night Jesus is born, the angels like burst open the heavens uh, and they say, I, um, this message, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. You can read, everybody, good news, great joy, all the people today in the town of David, the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So do you, do you hear the echoes of this? Is this making any sense at all? Somebody, somebody nod your head if you're, if you're hanging in there. Okay, right? I, I want us to see that like these promises, these are, not just, these are not just like words we sing at Christmas time. This was the promise that Jesus was this true king in the line of David, the king that everybody has been longing for, the king... Um, who, who would lead the world in love and justice and righteousness. Now, take a look then, Luke 3. So Jesus, he, um, he's born here, and then we have about 30 years of silence, and then we turn over to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Are you with me? Verse 21 and 22. Now it says this, So when all the people were being baptized... They were going out. John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus went to be baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open. Heaven opened up. 
And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven that said this, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And now Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. A couple of things. So we talked about this the other week, that when you read the Bible, it's like if, if, if we could do this, it would be so cool. It's like you would have these hyperlinks. That the text that we're reading, it would be lit up in blue, and you could just like push the hyperlinks, and it would connect you to all of the meaning of the backstory that, that you are reading like into this. So first off, Jesus comes to be baptized, and it says the heavens opened up. The heavens, in, in Mark's gospel, it says the heavens were torn open. It's like they were rended apart. Now, that's a reference to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, like at the end of the prophet Isaiah, he says, Oh God, when you will come and rend the heavens open, when you will come to us and lead us. It's like 700 years before Jesus. These people are saying, God, when will you come and fix things? When will you come and make things right? Will we always live in darkness? Will the world always be like this in chaos? God, that you would come and rend the heavens open. And here, at Jesus' baptism, the heavens are torn open, and God descends from heaven onto Jesus like a dove. This text is telling us that what Isaiah longed for, what we all long for, is coming true in Jesus. That day is today. The heavens are open, and the Spirit of God comes down on Jesus. And then the voice of heaven speaks over Jesus. And what does the voice of heaven say? It says three things. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You might just read those words and be like, wow, that's good. Like every father should say that to their son. That's good. I love you. I'm pleased. I'm proud of you. Like those are good things to say. Is that what God is saying to Jesus? Hey, I love you. You're my child. I'm proud of you. Probably. But is there anything else that that means? Again, if you read this text with Old Testament ears, you would hear these echoes of a promise. Because <clears throat> there are three hyperlinks in this text, and one of them goes back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 says this, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession." Now, do you know what Psalm 2 was used for? It was used in the coronation of the kings of Israel. That's kind of cool, huh? So, so the kings of Israel, just these dudes sitting under robes and crowns, would sit there, and Psalm 2 would be read over them as an oil was anointed, uh, poured over their heads as a symbol of God's favor and calling and, and God's provision and power on, on these, just these men. And they would read Psalm 2 over them, the priest would, and the priest would say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So when Jesus is being baptized and he stands up out of the water and the water is dripping down him, just like that anointing, it's not a priest who stands over him and says, You are my son, today I have become your father. It's the voice of heaven. This is a kingly coronation moment. That this is what people would have understood, that this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, he is the promised king. 
So Psalm 2 is like this, this reference to him. So Jesus is king. Um, the day has come. Like God is going to bring his rule and his reign, and he's going to fix everything. He's going to make everything that is broken right. But there's a second hyperlink. And the second hyperlink is, is in these words, um, with you I am well pleased. And, and this second hyperlink is actually to not just a kingly passage, but it's to Isaiah chapter 42. And Isaiah envisions this one who will come on God's behalf who will be called the servant. So Isaiah chapter 40 through the end of Isaiah is all about this servant who Isaiah sees. And the servant is going to be faithful to God. The servant is going to do God's will. The servant is going to be the one God anoints and uses. And here's what he says, Isaiah 42 verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, in whom I'm well pleased. This is Isaiah 42, 1. And I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nation. So Jesus is a king, but what kind of king is Jesus? He's a servant king. See, these, these, two, these two hyperlinks, right? They tell us, like, Jesus is king. He's royalty. He's, he's in charge. He's going to lead things. He is the true heir of David. And he is the one who is going to come and fix everything that is wrong. And how is he going to do that? Not by being a tyrant, but by being a servant. He will be God's servant, and he will actually live and live out this kingdom by serving others. And so what does Jesus do? What does this servant king do as he comes up out of the water and he has the spirit of God that descends on him in like bodily form as a dove and he voice from God speak to him. He just goes out into the world and he begins his ministry and he pushes back the powers of darkness. He goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by the evil one and the evil one tempts him in all the ways he's always tempted broken people and Jesus resists it. He doesn't give in to the evil one's temptation. Jesus is the king who will push back and take control over the powers of darkness. Jesus has victory over that. Jesus then, he goes and he starts announcing, hey, everybody, wake up. The kingdom of God is here. It is among you. Open your eyes. Believe the good news. God's presence is coming among you. Jesus, he announces that the kingdom is here um, in his own being, in his own presence and then he goes out and he starts hanging out with people that nobody thought he should be hanging out with. Luke 5, Jesus, why do you hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Like, why do you hang out with those people who, like, they're not the kind of people a king should be hanging out with? And Jesus, like, right, his kingdom is like serving. He's serving the last and the least and the lost and those pushed to the edges and those who are kind of trampled by everything. This is who Jesus, like, prioritizes in his kingdom. Like Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus comes and announces and he embodies and he, he lives, it is the most beautiful vision of a kingdom that we could ever imagine. He looks at people who are sick and who are wounded and who have, who have leprosy, who are possessed by evil spirits, and he cleanses them. Like he has authority to speak words and things change. King Jesus has power over the powers of creation that as a storm like threatens to, to like, capsize the, the boat. Thankfully, there weren't huge waves on this boat that you were stranded on, Dennis, right? But, but King Jesus, he stands up and he's like, peace, be still, and the storms obey him. He has power over creation itself. Like everything Jesus does is like the authority of God is breaking into this world. He is a king and he is a servant king. He, 
He is a king who loves people who serves with goodness and justice and love. He is a king we all long for. Now, if we were a Pentecostal church, right, somebody could say amen to that. You can help, you can help a brother out sometimes. Right? This is kind of warm. Preach better, Eric. Preach better. Man, I'm trying, guys. I'm trying. Man, I just like, I, words, they fail. They fail to live up to how good the servant king really is. Right? Like, you, we got 26 letters to put together to make words to try to describe how good he is. And they're going to fall short. But he's a king. And he's more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And he, he, he draws us to himself. Like, we're drawn to King Jesus through his unfailing kindness for us. But here's the problem, is that there's still something in our heart that resists him. That there is something in your heart and my heart that resists him. Because there's something inside of us that resists a king. That resists being ruled. Right? Did that may get a little bit of a rash when I said that, being ruled? Back off. Right? Don't, like in Psalm 2, this coronation psalm referenced here, it says like the kings of the earth conspire, the rulers of the world, they get together and they say, let's throw off his yoke, let's break his, his bonds on our life. Anybody else feel that little rebellious nature that says like when somebody is like, want to put a yoke on you, want to have some say-so over your life, you're like, no, I run my own life, thank you very much. There's something inside of every human heart that says, no thank you. I don't want a king. I, don't, I, yeah, I long for a king. I, my heart longs for it, and I crave it more than I ever even name or understand. But I don't want a king because I want to run my own life. Are we preaching yet? I mean, this is, this is the human dilemma. And so the powers, right, the, the, these rebellious people, as good as King Jesus is, as, as, as much of a servant king as he is, he's a servant king who has to suffer. And do you know why he suffers? He suffers because that thing inside the human heart that says, I don't want you to be my king. doesn't matter how good you are. I'm going to be my own king. So the powers of darkness and broken people, they, they conspire together and they say, let's break off his yoke. Let's, let's break away from his bonds. And they nail him to a cross. And they think they're doing it ironically. And they put a sign above the cross that says, king of the Jews. Now what they thought they were doing ironically, they were actually doing prophetically. That Jesus on the cross, he was actually becoming the suffering servant that Isaiah envisioned. See, Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, he says, this servant, things aren't going to go well for him. He's going to be so good and so pure and so loving and so good that people can't stand it. And so they're going to actually hurt him. And he's going to be wounded for our transgressions and he's going to be crushed for our sins. And the punishment that brought us life was placed upon him. That Jesus is the servant king who would suffer on our behalf, who would suffer uh, because of our sin, who would suffer the consequences of our sin, who would suffer the punishment for our sin. That Jesus was willing to serve us by giving his life away for us. You get time for one other hyperlink? Is that okay? Jay said okay, so I'm going to go with him, okay? Are you familiar with the story of... Uh, Isaac, his son Isaac, in Genesis 22. It's a hard story to read. It's always, it's one of the stories that I, I cringe at. Um, <clears throat> because, you know, Abraham and, and Sarah, they've waited, they've waited for like 
25 years, and they're elderly folks. I mean, they're nearly 100 years old at this point. And they've waited for this promised blessing that someday they're going to have a, an, a son, and their son is going to, you know, bring their covenant blessing to the rest of the world. And they, they wait, and they finally they have this son, Isaac, and Isaac is the, you know, kind of the apple of their eyes, and, and they love Isaac. And Isaac is probably, you know, by the time you get to Genesis 22, Isaac is probably a late teenager. Abraham is very elderly. And here's what God says to Abraham in Genesis 22. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Now, do you hear the echoes? Take your son, your only son, whom you love, in the words that were spoken by God over Jesus at his baptism. Do you hear that? You are my son, my only son, whom, I, whom I'm well pleased. You're meant to look back to Genesis 22, to this, this promise, or this, um, this thing that God was doing through Abraham and Isaac. Later in the New Testament, we look back and we say, um, it says, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice, who, when he, he embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. So you read Genesis 22, and it's hard. It seems like God wants Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And so, um, so Abraham, he, he tells this, this teenager, right? If you late teenager, and your father is probably close to 100 years old, is your father forcing you to do this? No, like, right? Probably not. You're choosing to do this. In fact, this text, Genesis 22, in, in Jewish, the Jewish world is actually called the binding of Isaac. It's much more about Isaac than it is about Abraham. And so Isaac, he, he goes up with his dad, with Abraham, and they go to Mount Moriah, up on this, this mountain. Uh, and by the way, um, a little bit later in the Old Testament, you come to find out that Mount Moriah was actually the place where the temple was built in Jerusalem. And Mount Moriah was also very close to this place called Golgotha, which is known the place of the skull. That comes back later in the story. So Abraham and Isaac, they walk up the, the mountain, and Isaac has to carry the own, his own wood for the sacrifice, right? because Abraham can't, so he's carrying his own wood. And they make an altar up on the mountain, and Isaac looks around and says, like, Dad, where's the, where's the ram that's going to be sacrificed? And Abraham speaks prophetically, and he says, God will provide the, the ram. And, um, and, and then there's this moment where Abraham, like, they make the altar, and, and Isaac begins to understand what's going on, and Isaac lays down on the altar, and Abraham takes a knife, and he's about, like, to sacrifice his, his own son. Now, here's the thing. Like, in this world, it sounds so cruel and so archaic and horrific, and it is, but that's the way lots of people thought about God. People thought, if you really love God, you're going to sacrifice something for him. You're going to sacrifice, you know, a firstborn this or that. And, and if you really love God, there were other pagan nations around that says, like, you'll sacrifice your one and only child to God if you, to prove you really love God. That's what all the other nations were doing. And God takes Abraham through this whole thing as this symbol. And at the last moment, God says, Abraham, put down the knife. Like, that is not what I'm like. Like, takes him through this whole thing and shows him this is not what God is actually like. And Abraham, he like, out of gratitude, he obeys God. He puts down the knife. And they look and they see this ram that's caught in some thorns in a thicket, right? Caught in the thorns over here. And they, they go and they get the ram and they sacrifice the ram. And Abraham and Isaac, they have this incredible 
I just imagine this incredible embrace and thanksgiving for, for God's provision. And, and it says, like, there's this crazy passage in John 8 where Jesus says, Abraham, he saw, my, like, think about this, 2,000 years later, Jesus says in John 8, Abraham saw me and rejoiced. What does it mean that Abraham saw Jesus and rejoiced? Do you ever wonder if like Abraham there on Mount Moriah, he looks over and he sees a ram caught in the thick, and there's some, something happening in Abraham's heart, and he's like, not my son, but your son. Somehow Abraham saw Jesus, and 2,000 years later, the true king, the true son of God, whom he loves and whom his spirit is in and whom he delights, he carries his own wooden cross, right, up this mountain, not Mount Moriah, but Mount Golgotha. And he was the lamb that God had provided for the sins of the whole world, and he had a crown of thorns, thickets, placed on his head, and he became, Jesus became the suffering king, the lamb of God who took away the sins of the whole world, that Jesus is the king who serves his people by suffering on their behalf in order to set them free forever. Do you believe that? What does it mean for you to call Jesus king today? Because we can say those words, right? And they can mean nothing. And, and we can have this idea like, you know, Jesus, man, he loves us and he does. And he's with us and he's for us on our behalf. But here, here's a truth that will set us free is Jesus is not your consultant. He's your king. Jesus isn't a life coach. He's not somebody who's just going to cheer you on and say, hey, like you do you. You do your best. He's, he's king. And for us to call him king means we have to surrender to him. We submit to him. Which means the only way it works is if we surrender to him. And which means we're going to have to get past that rebellious thing in our heart that says, I will be my own king. Thank you very much. Jesus, I'm fine with you as a consultant. I'm fine with you as a life coach. I'm fine you kind of cheering me on. But I'll take your advice and I'll make my own decisions. Thank you very much. And that's not the story. Like, Jesus is king, or he's nothing. Like, that's what we're invited into. It's just like this white flag of surrender. This is Jesus, I am choosing to make you king of my life. And part of what that means is, Jesus, I'm choosing to obey you. I got a little bit of a rash right there, too, because I, like to, I don't like the word obey. I got a thing with it. Because there was this old hymn we used to sing, Trust and Obey, and I didn't like it very much because I don't like to obey. I like to do my own thing. And yet Jesus says this to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey me. That's not manipulation. That's just truth. It's like if you love me, if you recognize me as king, you'll do what I say. Is there any way in your life where you're treating Jesus as a life coach or a consultant, and he's just asking you, make me king? Just make me king. Surrender to me. Because I can promise you, the life Jesus offers you, when you surrender to him, when he becomes your king, when you obey him and you step inside of that, it is much better than the life of you trying to run your own life. I can promise you. Because I know every time I step out of that, every time I go my own way, I make a mess of things. 
And it's only by surrendering, it's only by coming back, it's only by obeying Jesus that I find life and flourishing and goodness. Is there any part of your life where you're just like, I know Jesus says this, but I'm going to do something else. So Jesus says, you, you got to forgive that person. You, you have to forgive them. You're like, Jesus, I know you said that, but I'm not going to do it. I just, just know, is an interim pastor allowed to preach like this? Is that, is that right? Um, yeah, that's why. You don't have to like me. <laughs> oh, that's good. But it's just, it's just true. I mean, Jesus says, like, forgive. And ah, I'm going to choose to harbor resentment and bitterness and anger. And it's going to destroy me. Jesus, like, you know, he talks about loving our enemies. It's like, man, I like to hate that person. I, I like to... I like to hold on to, to bitterness and grudge against them. Um, where Jesus says about generosity, he calls us to live this open-handed, generous life. And it's like, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just like hold on to this because my security comes from my money. Jesus says, like, hey, like lust is this damaging thing. It damages you and it damages others. And it's like, yeah, but I kind of I like this arrangement in my life. Like, is there any place in your life where you are not making Jesus king? Because I can promise you freedom comes. Freedom will only ever come with surrender to Jesus as king. So Jesus, you are king. You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the one that our hearts long for, even though we don't even know it. You are the one that fulfilled all of the promises that, um, that were spoken about you over thousands of years of human history in the Old Testament. In you, Lord Jesus, every promise is yes and amen. And Jesus, we love you. You call us to yourself, you draw your kindness, and we love you. And because we love you, we surrender to you. And maybe just in an act of surrender again today, just, just open your hands if you, if you want to. Um, you can just palms up, however you want to do it. You can just raise your hand if you want to. But just like surrender to Jesus. And if the Spirit is, is nudging you, if there's any part of your life where you're like, ah, no, this is me, this is mine, I'm holding on to this, Jesus is not king of this part of my life, we just let the Spirit do its work in that part of your life because that's where, the, that's where the battle is. That's where freedom lies. Jesus, I pray that you would just draw us to trust you, to love you, to obey you, to surrender to you through your kindness. You hold out freedom and goodness. You are the suffering servant king who comes to rule and to reign and to lead your people with love and justice. We thank you so much, God, for who you are. We pray in Jesus' name.